Hey, are you ready to grow your business? You have checked out the number one resource for business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and managers. And we're going to teach you how to grow and scale your business with real actionable steps. There's no fluff in this podcast. It's just good advice. Check out this episode. If you're a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, leave us a five-star review. Today's guest is Allah Hunkins, who's the CEO of the Hunkins Leadership Group. And we're going to be talking about cracking that leadership code. In fact, Allah is the author of an incredible book called Cracking the Leadership Code. If you've been looking to figure out how to manage your people better, to get better results, to find them more engaged, and frankly, just to be a better boss, to be a better leader, this episode is for you. Stay tuned. Here comes your good advice. Hey, thanks for checking out another episode of the Good Advice Podcast. We're talking about an area that I am especially passionate about, something that I feel so, uh, I just feel grateful to have this guest on the show today. If you've been trying to crack the leadership code, we all know how hard leadership can be. We know that it is not pretty and cute like we like to make it sometimes when we talk about it on social media. It actually can be very clunky and complex. Well, I've brought to you today a guest who understands the leadership code and how to crack it. In fact, he's published a book called Cracking the Leadership Code. He brings years of experience to the topic of leadership. He's also the CEO of the Hunkins Leadership Group. I'm sitting down with Allah Hunkins, who's joining me today. And I can't tell you how excited I am. Allah, thank you for joining me. Blake, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited for our conversation and kudos to you on pronouncing my French name, alas, so well. Oh, you could tell that I paused and I almost kind of looked at you like, was that, did we get it? Did we nail it? it you know, it's, it's so important to have, you know, you got you to call the guest by the right name. I had someone yeah. on the show one time who I kept, I kept referring to her throughout the entire episode. And at the very, literally, where we talked for maybe 45 minutes, at the very end, I said, hey, yeah, if you want to reach out to her, here's her LinkedIn. And she piped up, she said, actually, it's pronounced this. And I thought, okay, I wish you had told me that at the start. So, um, but Hey, I, I am so glad to have you on. And I mean, I can't tell you uh, what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be so incredible for our listeners. Cause I think, I think there's people out there who, uh, and you heard me mention it in the intro, we like to make leadership feel like this really, um, cute bow with the ribbon, you know, people will publish content and say, it's, you know, it's all about, certain cliches. Like it's just about servant leadership. It's just all about like giving back. And, and these things are true in concept, but anyone who's led in any way knows how incredibly uncomfortable and complicated leadership can be. So thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. No, I'm really, really happy to talk about this with you. Thanks. So talk to us a little bit about, I gave you a little bit, I, I did a little bit of your bio. I'd love to give you the space to share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and, and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Sure. So for me, I mean, my passion is around helping people unlock their potential. And so that's under the umbrella of leadership. And I should probably do some level setting here, Blake, because my definition of leadership is not about a position or a job title. I believe that in today's world, especially any time that any of us are trying to get anyone else to do something, that's influence. That takes leadership skills. So in essence, we are all leading every day. 
And the world of leadership has changed radically over the last 50 to 70 years, and, and it keeps changing. So I've just been fascinated by people, what makes them tick ever since I was a kid. I studied psychology in undergrad. I then went on to get a graduate degree in MFA from an acting conservatory. So I trained as a professional actor and I worked as an actor and then an, an actor teacher in the New York City Public Schools, moved from doing arts and education and leadership training in schools friend of mine said, do you ever think about doing work in corporate? It's like, no. So long story short, I ended up doing some corporate training. This is back in 1997. And then I started working with various Fortune 500 companies, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found was, and this is true of anything that you study for long enough, is that I saw these patterns start to emerge. It turns out that all the best leaders had certain things in common and all the lousy ones had certain things in common. And I would hear their stories and I'd started taking notes. And then I started writing these blog posts based on the stories, because that's how we learn. We learn through storytelling, which I hope we get to some good stories today. And the stories turned into these chapters of what is now this book, Cracking the Leadership Code. And so for me, like you said it so well, like leadership is not some easy platitudinal theory that you can just say, ah, servant leadership. The fact is, and here's to me is the ultimate dilemma, which is like so many of us listening right now probably got into leadership because we were high performers who got stuff done. And someone said, Blake, you're a good salesperson. Let's make you the sales manager. But obviously here's the deal, which is there's a huge gap between being that high performer and knowing how to facilitate high performers, high performance in others. And that gap doesn't get closed by doing what you did. Like just being a good salesperson does not make you a good sales manager. And so it's a radical shift in mindset. And I call it the facilitative mindset. Um, and the idea of the word facilitate comes from the Latin word facile, which means to make things easy. And what great leaders do is they know how to make achieving performance goals easier for the people they lead, which takes a certain kind of mindset, a certain makeup of belief, which is about stepping out of being the commander in chief, which most of us, that's what we know. It's like, you're the leader, you're in charge, as opposed to being the facilitator in chief, that time when you actually realize that you aren't here to be in charge. You are here to help the people who are in your charge to get what they need to get done, done. And so there's a huge difference in that. And then the other piece is having the right skills. How do you become a facilitative leader? It's different from this whole, do as I say, become the boss. That's why. And to me, there's three overarching skill sets that show up time and time again. And this came not from me sitting down with a cocktail napkin. This came out of me working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups and seeing the same three patterns keep emerging. And the three skill sets are connection. So we need to be well connected because at its core, leadership is a human to human one-on-one relationship. So we need to create connection with the people we lead. Second one is around communication. How do we create clarity and shared understanding so that we're making best decisions? And then the third is collaboration. So once we decide we understand what we want to do, how do we do it well? So connection, communication, collaboration ends up, and that's the subtitle of the book, The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. So for me, it really boils down to how do you shift into becoming a facilitative leader? Some of the challenges that... So, so first of all, I really appreciate your perspective. I, anytime someone can boil down a really complicated concept like leadership into very uh, easily tangible bite-sized pieces, I think that's something worth... Uh, really clinging on to. Something else you mentioned that I think is pretty interesting in today's leadership world is 
is I, I think any leader can learn those three C's that you just mentioned. Part of the disconnect, and we've seen an enormous amount of data on this, on the number of people who get put into a leadership position, but then aren't trained to actually lead. And so you mentioned, for example, the very uh, stereotypical example of the salesperson who, uh, you know, man, I'm such a great salesperson. And now I lead the sales team, but I'm never taught how, you know, because as a salesperson, it was all about my bottom line and my numbers. And now it's less about that. It's about my team being elevated. And so talk to me a little bit about what's going on with the disconnect of, of, of business leaders of their companies in moving people into leadership positions and yet not giving them the adequate training they need to actually lead. And actually, I'll give you another statistic. They're actually, I'm going to butcher because I I can't remember the statistic as I'm about to say it. But um, I've read that the leadership consulting space, for example, has grown astronomically in the last decade. We're spending more money than ever on training leaders. And yet we're still seeing the same levels of disengagement on teams. We're still seeing the same levels of um, attrition on teams and people quitting their businesses because of bad bosses. So there's this very tangible disconnect. There's a gap there that doesn't quite make sense, especially where, especially if you get on like Facebook, for example, you can find a coach or a consultant in any corner who will say, oh, I'll, I'll solve it for you. I'll tell you how to do this. What's going on with the, the disconnect? What's happening with this gap in leadership training? Yeah. So one of the issues, and I think anyone who has ever been to a traditional training has this experience. So let's say you go off and it may be really good content. You go off for two days or whatever it is, three days or one day for leadership training. And so whoever's there is a good consultant, gives you all this great theory. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But by the end of it, your brain is full and you remember like two or three things. Like when I get back to the office, I'm going to do these two or three things. Well, that's the next day. And like those three things become like two things. But then your boss calls like, hey, I need you to do this. And before you know it, because you have not created any way to embed this into a behavioral habit and you don't have a structure you just go back to doing what you do, which is why I think so much traditional leadership training fails. Because, you know, look, if you live in Florida, you can grow oranges, right? You have the right climate for it. But if you live in Minnesota, there's no way you're going to grow oranges. So the idea is that, you know, we, we plant these seeds around leadership behaviors growing, but if the climate does not support it, and I think a lot of people who are in these see, you know, C-suite roles who decide, you know, we have to bring in more leadership in, in terms of this. And they haven't really thought through what does this mean? Because really leadership can't be taught. It can only be learned, hmm. right? So, I mean, if that makes sense, right? It's the sense of, and most of where it gets learned is not in a formal training course. Most of it gets learned by the leaders around you and what they're modeling. And most of the modeling of leadership is crappy. I mean, the fact is, I mean, studies I had in the book, like you know, only about 23% of people think their leaders lead well. Now, what's interesting is if you had a room of 100 leaders, I doubt that only 23 people would say, I'm a good leader. You'd have 99 people going, I'm a good, right? So we have, you know, that you, you're probably familiar with the whole cognitive bias of, they call it illusory superiority, right? It's why 95% of people say they're above average drivers. And here's the thing about it is that if only 23% of employees think their leaders are good, The reason the other 77% aren't speaking up is because speaking up is a career limiting move, right? People don't do it. And most bosses, most leaders in organizations 
don't create an environment where they really want to hear it. And let's face it, if you have the title, you have the power, you have the money, and you are lazy and don't want to change, why would you develop yourself? I mean, think about it, right? There's no real incentive to do so unless there's a wake-up call, unless there's a, oh, I need to do this. So rare is the person who takes it on themselves to do this. And I think the people that are listening, good on you, because you're clearly, if you listen this far, you clearly want to get better at this. And I, I feel for those businesses where the we can we can just call them maybe the middle manager or maybe they're maybe they're an entry level executive role. They're at the start of that executive ladder, yeah. Yeah. and they're being put through some sort of leadership training or some sort of management training. And it is this like you know week long or two three two or three day you know expansive thing. But at the end of the day, the concepts that are being drilled into them aren't being always modeled by their C suite team. And it's almost like I remember there was one time I was working with a company where it really was that middle manager group. And we were talking about one of their biggest challenges to leading. And one person basically raised their hand and said, frankly, it's really hard because we're held to a standard that our bosses don't hold themselves to. And you could kind of just feel the quietness in the room as everyone was kind of like, yeah, that's... That's totally true. And so it, it almost feels like this money pit of we're going to put so much money into training our leaders. And yet, at the end of the day, the biggest, the biggest way we could actually move the needle would be getting in front of the mirror and saying, okay, what am I actually tangibly modeling? And I think, I think it was a Harvard Business Review that talked about the percent of people who are actually self-aware, who actually see those, those areas to grow is between 10 and 15%. And so we don't necessarily have those leaders at the top who are looking in the mirror and saying, okay, my company's dysfunctional and it's not because of my middle managers. It's actually because of me. Yeah. yeah. So. It's taking that look in the mirror. And yeah, I think that 10 to 15% that you quoted. Yeah. My colleague, Tasha Yurik's got this great book called Insight. And I think that HBR article was, it was um, adapted from her work. The fact is most of us don't change unless there is a real strong alarm clock moment, Tasha calls them, right? There's the wake up calls. And so hopefully we've had it we're like, oh crap, this isn't working. I got to find a different way to do stuff. And what we can recognize, and, and you share that story so well about somebody saying, you know, we're held to this higher standard than our bosses are. I mean, I've been in rooms where I've had many people say, um, are, 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 is the senior team going through this training? Because they could really use this. And there's this eye roll, like the collective eye roll. And like if you've been there, you know that palpable experience, like, oh, well, and that's where you hear those conversations. Well, it is what it is, or do what you can, keep your head down. And and so what we end up doing is this rush to this middling mediocrity in the middle and people just put up with it. And because that, you know, we all make choices. And for some of us, it's, you know, I got to pay my mortgage. I got to feed my kids versus leaving today. So we don't leave, but instead we check out. And so that's the active disengagement or passive disengagement that you see that is so rampant in so many organizations. Absolutely. And it's, 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 it almost makes me think about businesses who, they really want to see a difference in outcomes in the business. And so they'll, they'll invest in these kinds of training, which, which again, you can have all sorts of trainings that are just so incredible. But at the end of the day, if, if the, those deep culture changes aren't being willing to be walked out by the leadership team, by the senior leadership team, it's really hard to actually see those things play out. Something else I want to ask you about, and I want to go back to those three secrets you mentioned. I really appreciate... You mentioned three C's, three things that 
are, you know, we, we hear those things and it's like, oh, I, I can, I can, I think I could do that. You know, you didn't talk about, um, you need to have a PhD in leadership theory or, um, or even you actually didn't even mention, well, if you're going to be a good leader, you have to have 50 years of experience. I mean, you actually mentioned three categories that everyone's who, everyone who's listening can say, yeah, I could, I could lean into that. I can learn more about that. I'd love to stop there for a second and hear more about these three C's and how you came up with these these things in particular as opposed to something else. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, what I kept seeing was, like, you know, we talked about disconnects before, like, okay, so what's going on with this disconnect? I'll, I'll share a story with you around this. So I was working with a Fortune 100 energy company and they had an annual conference in Atlanta. And they had invited 2,000 people from around the world, some of their high performers from all around the world to come to this conference. And if anyone's ever been to a big conference like this, you know, typically what happens is there's some kind of kickoff, like marching band, something to get the energy up. And then the CEO takes the stage, you know, kind of riding the peak of that energy. And they usually do some kind of a state of the nation, welcome everybody and get them excited. And they do a little, here's their year in review. Here's where we're at. Here's where we're going. And they kick off the conference. And so that's what you typically expect. So that's generally what the plan was. So in terms of this CEO in particular, so the marching band does their thing. There's all this light, you know, they had spent who knows how much money on the whole production values. I mean, this is Broadway level production values. Amazing. CEO hits the stage, PowerPoint deck comes up. He's like, all right, we're going to go through last year's numbers. And they're very quickly. There's this, you know, the Excel spreadsheet comes up on the slides. Like, so oh, here we go. Here's our column and here's our revenue. And this last column here, this is EBITDA. That's earnings before. He's like, wait, why am I telling you that? If you don't know what that is, you shouldn't be in this room. I mean, it's like, I'm thinking to myself, inside voice CEO, inside. Don't, don't share that out loud. And as he's saying this, I can see people digging further and further into their chairs. Their arms are crossing and they're getting defensive. They're crossing their arms in front of their chests. And the energy is getting, they've spent so much money and time flying people from around the world. And the energy is being literally sucked out of the room. And to me, that's just this example of connection. It's like, I'm sorry, I don't care if you're in the energy business or the pharmaceutical business or high tech or retail, you are in the people business. We are all leading human beings. And if you can't just take the nice moment to go, hello, how are you? Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for flying in from around the world. I mean, some basic, basic stuff. Now, we might call that emotional intelligence. Some of us say like, that's what my mom taught me. <laughs> you know? And so, and it's interesting because as people hear that, you know, that's about connection. And so to me, the core of connection is empathy, it's, which is, I define it as showing people that you understand them and care how they feel. Now we can all laugh at that CEO and go like, I would never do that. Yet all the studies would say, actually, a lot of us in leadership roles are not that empathetic at work. Now you might be, you know, with your kids and your family, et cetera. However, in work, if you think about it, one of the big challenges to really connecting with people is for me to take some time with you, Blake, and say, hey, how are you? How, how are things? How, that takes some time. And if you are feeling that pressure of, I've got results to deliver, we've got a job to do, we've got tasks to get to, we might skip that. Like, all right, oh, I need this. I can shoot back and forth emails. And pretty soon, you're not really a person. You are a task doer. And so connection for me starts with, you've got to put people before tasks. And I think a lot of leaders are uncomfortable with that whole thing because they think, I'm, you know, I was trained in finance and accounting. I didn't. So we have to be interested enough in people and human psychology to realize that if you can get people engaged, 
If you can have people feel cared for, it's not just a soft and fuzzy thing to do. It's actually what's going to make them a whole lot more productive. And it almost feels like there's a bit of a, um, I can't think of the word. It almost feels like this concept of like relationship versus results that we really pit these things together uh, against one another in that I can't be warm and fuzzy and get results, or I have to be sort of like the, you know, the taskmaster. Yeah. I'm driving people to, you know, if they don't like it, they can leave like sort yeah. of this unempathetic role. And it feels like it's rare where you find the magic of that leader who's really found the way to legitimately blend those two things together. And I've even seen it where, and, and again, as we're talking about this, this doesn't seem too complicated. I mean, you said it yourself. This is like, these are concepts like our mom taught us, yeah. but I've seen it where I've, I've been talking to a leader who is, the relationship is so absent in his business that I remember one time we were talking back and forth and he was like, so you're saying I should like go around the office and like ask people how they're doing kind of incredulous. And I was like, yeah, that's a good start. And he was like, and that's like, just do that. And I was like, yeah, but it was like a foreign, it was like a foreign concept to him because he was so ingrained in the sense of as a leader, it's, I'm the, I'm the general, I'm the, you know, I make things happen uh, rather than understanding you can have both. Yeah. You bring it up this sense of uh, that false binary that we have to sound like we're either this or that, you know, black, white, good, bad, right, wrong. It's like, that's such, I mean, humans tend to do that because we want simplicity. Like how do I lead? You know, like, I mean, like I saw this movie Patton and I saw he was, Oh, go, go team. Like, you know, once more from the breach, dear friends, you can be both. You can have a focus on results and you can have a focus on relationships. I mean, it's just so interesting, though, because if you think about your typical business meeting, you think about where do we spend our time? What's the, let's say you have an annual like or a monthly update meeting with a team. First thing you're going to do, and this is this, and people go, well, of course, this is what we do, because this is how it's always been done. What do we talk about first? We talk about the numbers, right? Like, okay, how are the numbers? No, are sales coming in? How is operations? You know, where's breakage? Whatever it is, whatever your numbers are. You talk about your numbers for a while. In fact, that takes most of the meeting. And then you might get to, so what are the issues? What are the projects we're working on? And you get to that. And then if there's a little time left, maybe someone brings up, well, how are the people doing? Like, you know, if that even gets mentioned. So our conversations are around the numbers, which by the way, are only a lagging indicator of the work that the people were doing. Whereas, and there's a great um, story. So Hubert Jolie, who is the uh, CEO of Best Buy, he completely flipped this model. So he would have his status reports. They wouldn't talk about numbers until the end. He said, don't worry, the finance people won't let us leave the room without getting to the numbers. But we would start our meetings talking about the people. So you can make a choice about this. What's most valuable? You know, because, you know, I was working with this guy named Matt and Matt was, you talked about these guys big for their britches. So Matt had gotten promoted to be a district manager. And he was, as he described it to me, he was full of himself. It's like, I'm promoted. I'm the district manager. And, um, and there was a hundred district managers, the retail company. And when they, and they were all ranked by performance. When he started, he was 84th out of hundred. And this was his strategy is every day they would get a printout of their key performance metrics called a hot list. And he had nine stores that he was, he was managing. So there's nine store managers and he's the district manager. First thing he'd do is look at the hot list, see what was in red that was not measuring up. And then he would get in his car and he would drive from store to store, say, hey, look, this isn't, you got to fix this, fix this. So he was the fixer in chief. And he'd tell people what was wrong. And he was working really hard and he was struggling. And he said the worst day 
was the day he realized there were people on his teams in the stores that were quitting. He didn't even know what their names were. Right. And so he went, he, so that was when he had his insight moment, that wake up call moment of this ain't working. I got to switch my approach. So he realized, Oh, and he talked, got some mentoring and he said, what are you doing about the people? Kind of that, that moment you talked about. And he went, Oh, so he started going into the stores and talking to the store manager. Hey, Blake, how was your weekend? what you do? And, and shifted that around. And then he'd pull out the hot list at the same data. But instead of saying, you got to fix this, Blake, he'd say, here's the data. What do you think we should do to fix this? So he'd engage you by listening and then they'd work together to do this. And so what Matt said was that's when everything shifted. And he realized that the key to making the numbers was to stop focusing on the numbers, but instead to start focusing on the people because it was the people that actually delivered the numbers. Now, look, we're in business. Obviously, we have to get a result. We're not all here to sit around and hold each other's hands and sing Kumbaya. And we also know that to get to those results, that when people can do their best work, they often almost always need to be in situations where they feel cared for and valued. So it's the both and versus the either or. Do you think that people are, are there some people who are naturally unable to take insight and digest it and apply it? Or is this a concept that is learned? Is this because like, for example, I'm thinking about a woman that I spoke to who she had a staff of 14 people and the entire 14 had quit in the last year, all 14 had quit. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking, she said, you know, millennials are just so hard to manage. And I said, well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, sure. I'm a millennial, but you know, Um, I said, have you considered something else? Because in my experience, when your entire staff quits, usually it's not them. Usually it's you. And she was almost shocked and taken aback of like, well, it, I'm the boss. It can't be me. I mean, I, (laughs) and I, and I remember I walked away from that conversation thinking she was given insight, but I wasn't sure how well she was able to internalize it and, and, and digest it into actual action. See the gentleman you mentioned, he internalized it and it changed yeah. his outcomes, right? Yeah. So like, is this, is this a learned behavior? Is this something that, I mean, do people just have it or not have it? I mean, what do you think? It can be learned. I think some people have a, a greater sensitivity to it than others. But you know, what, as you describe this woman and the team, 14 people leave, I mean, the, the thing that seems really lacking is any sense of humility in this. You know, how am I part of this? See, I think a much more empowering belief as a leader is that whatever the team does, whether it's good, bad, or anything, it's because of me. Now, that may not be completely true, but that means that I am the shaper of this. And in fact, Gallup did this study. They had 70% of the difference, the variance between lousy, good, and great culture is directly due to that team's leader. And so, you know, and it's funny, you bring this up around you know, 14 people leaving and her going, oh, how does that work out? Some people, it's the mindset. It's just so hard to see stuff that doesn't seem like it should exist. And I'll just give another example. I've done a lot of work with uh, people who come from a scientific or research and development background. I love these folks. They are super smart and they know they're subject matter experts. But if you are trained, if you're really trained in the classical idea of the scientific method, you start actually valuing data and facts more than people, in fact. Like, and, you don't, and, and part of it is you're expected to poke holes in other people's arguments because that's what you do. It's you know, peer review case study, like here, like, this is wrong, where you don't think about how other people feel. So when I've introduced this idea of, hey, take some time to connect, if I can introduce this as a formula or a process that they can then follow, 
I'm like, oh, I get it now. So instead of trying to rely on my intuitive, great people skills, like, okay, I don't have those, <laughs> but give me a simple formula. Like here's three questions. And in fact, I'll give you the three questions right now. So everyone listening, these are really great check-in questions. And like, number one, how are you feeling? And then I always put an asterisk, shut up and listen to the end, yeah. right? <laughs> Just in case you forget that part, because a lot of people forget that part. So how are you feeling is question number one. Question two, what's on your mind? Or if you like, what's distracting you? and let people answer question three how can i support you it's like okay i just scripted out a little template so you can keep this template in front of you so when you're on that zoom call you can look at your post-it note next to the camera um blake how are you feeling <laughs> and, then, and then believe it or not and, and i've done this with people they go oh my gosh oh man, it works it works you know people are actually talking to me they say, you know why they're talking to you because you're asking questions and listening to them go figure well and it's it's incredible yeah, you know, we kind of tongue in cheek a little bit, laughed a little bit about, you know, having to do this for the first time and how the awkwardness and discomfort, how that can be present if you've never done this before. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're ultimately talking about being human and treating your people as human rather than widgets that, you know, you're trying to get certain outcomes from or what have you. And I always appreciate the leaders who they lean into these kinds of questions and they do it with um, sincerity. And you even, I loved your, your tack on of shut up and listen. Cause I remember I had a boss one time who he would, every, every phone call, anytime he'd call, you always knew he needed something, but he'd always start with, Hey, how are you? And you'd say, uh, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm good. And he'd be, great. Well, here's what I need you to. And he would just, you know, immediately run over your answer. Yeah. So, so he was, he was at least doing, you know, a little bit of it, but it wasn't that, sincere relational we're connecting type of piece um and that's that can be a culture killer for sure oh totally i mean that's the whole idea it's like any of these things can be twisted and become these placeholders for oh i was taught in this management training course i did that i should ask you how you're doing okay check it off my list See, people are not boxes to be checked off your to-do list uh, obviously you have tasks and so we always say like you know you lead people, you manage projects, you manage tasks, but you have to lead people. And as you said before, I, so many people who are in leadership roles are still living out this industrial age widget mindset. It's like, oh, you're the chief widget maker. It's like that would have been fine if you were on an assembly line and we knew that all you were doing is putting together 652 widgets a day. But if you actually look at the work that we're all doing, everyone has to be a creative problem solver. Everyone has got to take information, assimilate it, move it to where it needs to be and figure out what's best for the company, what's best for the customer. And we're doing that all the time. And we're using technology to enable that decision-making. So if you, so we're asking people to do some higher level cognitive work. It's not just being on the, on the assembly line. So knowing that you have knowledge workers, what are you doing to lead a knowledge workforce? And that's, I think that's the big question that remains to be answered. Well, I think we'd naturally have to talk about culture and, mm-hmm. and how do you shape a culture that's effective? How do you shape a culture where people are, uh, you know, as Gallup would put it, actively engaged, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they're, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, they love yeah. the brand, they love the business and their outcomes and outputs are uh, measure, measurable and significant in terms of the bottom line. There, there's so much dialogue around culture right now, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to beat the horse to death in the sense of, and I, I do this a lot myself, 
I think we all understand that culture is not the ping pong table or, you know, I talked to a guy who was talking about culture in his business and he's like, Oh, it's really great. We have a pinball machine in the break room. And I, I even challenged him and said, you know, well, surely, you know, that's not, that's not what's keeping people. So give us, you know, as we're running out of time today, give us your perspective on, first of all, your take on what culture is. And second of all, how we as leaders can shape and form an effective culture. Oh, awesome question, Blake. So first of all, I would define culture. It's the fish tank in which we're all swimming, right? <laughs> and, and, and I love that. When we're in the fish tank, we just sort of like, this is what it is. Like fish don't yeah. go, I'm in the fish tank. It's like, this is what it is. And it's also, it's how we do things around here. So culture is all rooted in behavior. Now, how do we, so for example, do meetings start on time? Do they start late? Um, are we okay with that? And and so that all becomes these cultural norms. So that's what culture is. Now the question is, and the really well, important. I, and I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you, but yeah. and I apologize for doing it. I think an added piece to that too is even the the art of perceptions in there. Like for example, why does the meeting start late? You as the boss, you know why it's starting late because of X, Y, and Z. But the person sitting in the chair may have a totally different analysis of why it's starting late. And both of these things, I think, shape our culture for better or worse. Totally. Um, which yeah. I didn't mean to just cut in right there, but. Yeah, uh, no, but there's all these, I mean, there's all these different pieces. And then there's the subtle art of, so for example, let's say you have a meeting and you're leading the meeting and you have 10 people coming and five are there and five haven't gotten there and it's time to start. How do you handle it? Right. So right. I won't go into all that, but there's like an art to being able to acknowledge and honor the people that are there. And at the same time, do you hold and wait for it? And, and it's like, how this is all part of what you have to figure out. So to get back to the bigger question of culture, what can we do to lead culture? So in my mind, the key to creating a great culture is that realizing, so if we're all fish in the fish tank, is that fish thrive in certain fish tanks and they don't thrive in other ones, right? You don't feed your fish for a while. You know what happens? So to me, there's four fundamental employee needs that need to be satisfied for people to have the best fish tank. We'll stick with the analogy since we're running with it. Um, so the first is people have a need to feel safe. Okay. And safety isn't just physical safety. Now, obviously it is physical safety. So which is why so many people are working from home through coronavirus pandemic, because it's not safe to physically be near each other. The other big piece besides physical safety is psychological safety. Do people feel safe speaking up in meetings? Do they feel like their voice will be heard? Or do we just have one or two or three dominant people and that's it? And everyone else is passively there, but not really there. So that's the first is safety, both physical and psychological. The other big need that people have, number two out of four, is we all have a need for energy. So what are we doing as leaders to create an environment that's energized and enthusiastic? So for example, do our meetings go an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes, two hours without a break. And people are going, oh my gosh, like I need to go to the bathroom, please. Like right. just the basic biology. So for example, as a leader, do you build in breaks on long meetings every 90 minutes? And other things, especially if people are going Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, do you set your default meeting times for 50 minutes? So people have a little transition time between one hour's meeting to the next. Otherwise, you know, it all works well on paper, right? 60 minutes, like I got a meeting from one to two, two to three, three to four. But human factor, we start to have diminishing returns. So starting to think about how do I design my environment to consider the human factor in that? So that's energy. The third big need people have is around purpose. So how do we know that what we're doing actually matters? Because look, when people feel like what they're doing 
is bigger than themselves, they bring more energy to it. So how do we remind people that all of what we're doing, the day-to-day back and forth is actually serving society in some greater way, that there's a customer out there and we're making their life better. So how are you doing that? So for example, do we bring in some of our customers to talk to us about it? Do we talk about why we started this company in the first place? As leaders, do we talk about why I got into this business and why I'm your leader in the first place? So these are all things that we can do to satisfy people's need for purpose. And then the fourth need we all have is the need for ownership. I have yet to meet anyone who ever, ever said, God, you know what I love about that leader is how much they micromanage me. Said, <laughs> said no one ever. Right. So yeah, we have to set clear parameters and there's guidelines, etc. However, we want to give people some autonomy and some latitude, some freedom to color in between the lines the way we want, the way they, they want to. Because as we said before, we're all creatively problem solving and people need to have some autonomy and freedom to do that in the way they see fit. And when people can do that, they're way more engaged. So just to recap those four needs, we've got a need for safety, a need for energy, a need for ownership, and a need for purpose. And when people have all those and they're feeling like those needs are met, you're going to have an awesome fish tank to swim in. I think what I like about those examples is Again, a lot of times when we think about effective leadership, we think about like the big speech or like this very charismatic, um, you know, sort of like, uh, I don't know, I keep thinking George Washington, but this person who's like at the front of the ship who's like, yeah, exactly. let's, let's do it. And you're talking about four areas that are, uh, I don't call them in the weeds, but they're, but they're granular, they're day to day. Like this is my job today is to how do I create an environment that is uh, emotionally safe for my employees. And maybe that starts with not screaming at them in their face or, you know, it's a good place like to that. start. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are unfortunately out of time. What can people do who they want to follow and learn more about you? And maybe they even want to work with you. Uh, how can people stay in touch with you? Sure. Well, easiest place to go first is the book has its own webpage, www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com, which is spelled exactly the way it sounds. So that takes you right to the book page. While you're there, you can download the first chapter of the book, give it a little trial run. That will also connect you to the alanhunkins.com website, where you can learn about all the different types of offerings I have, which is about helping either individuals or teams or organizations to become better leaders. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. That is my social platform of choice. And if you have any questions from me directly, you can also, because you've listened this far, you are now part of the end of the podcast club. Alain, A-L-A-I-N, at alainhunkins.com. And I do answer all questions from people who are in the End Podcast Club. Alain, it's been so great having you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining. Blake, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Hey, for our listeners, if you've gotten to this point, what the heck are you waiting on? Click that subscribe button so you can keep getting good advice wherever you are. Also, make sure you check out Alas' website uh, and also more specifically, check out his book, Cracking the Leadership Code. I'll be sure to put a link to that website as well as a link to his LinkedIn uh, down in the episode description below so you can make sure you connect with him. Hey, don't forget that we are on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast, more importantly, if you want to promote your business on the podcast, you can do so at Patreon com slash good advice. And he gets all sorts of really fun perks, not just buying me a cup of coffee, but you also get all of our insights, including the work that we're doing with some of our customers shared straight to your inbox. Check that out. Patreon.com slash good advice. As always, thanks for supporting us. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you later. See ya.